Well, good morning, seminary family. If you have a Bible, please open up to Malachi chapter 3, the book of Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. I want to take a moment as we get started to thank uh, Dr. Patterson for the opportunity to preach. I know, been up at the Fort Worth campus now long enough to know the kind of, uh, of men that stand here, and so it is very much a privilege and an honor uh, to have this opportunity. I also want to thank Dr. Walker uh, for the introduction. Uh, as he mentioned, I spent my first four years here at the Houston campus, or uh, four years at Southwestern at the Houston campus, uh, where I taught for four years, and I've only been up here at Fort Worth for about a year and a half. As part of my duties at the Houston campus, some of you no doubt have heard that we have actually a seminary uh, prison degree program inside a maximum security state penitentiary just south of Houston. So when I taught in Houston, I taught half of my courses with normal traditional students like yourselves, and then half of those courses were inside this state penitentiary. Walked in, 40 convicted felons in white jumpsuits staring at me. And all of those courses, I came out with a ton of prison stories. In fact, if you have me here at the seminary, it's not, it's not infrequent that I begin a lecture saying, back when Dr. Patterson sent me to prison, this happened. Now, if you're new, uh, don't worry. It may not happen to you, but, uh, but we'll see. At any rate, one of my favorite prison stories, one of my favorite ones was my second semester there. It was the, the first day of class. I walked in, and I'm teaching a class called Narrative and Thematic Structure of the Bible. It's a class we offer here in our college. In this course, I, I begin the first day walking through what is the story of Scripture, kind of the grand narrative of the Bible, the, uh, the, the, the story beginning in Genesis and moving all the way through the end to Revelation. So it's the first day of class, and I'm open up to Genesis chapter 1, and I'm walking through the creation account, and I begin to unpack for them a theology of creation that grounds the whole narrative. We're walking through Genesis 1, unfolding the days of creation, and talking about God as creator. And when in the middle of this lecture, boom, lights go out. All of a sudden, it is the dead of night in this prison. There are no windows. I am surrounded by brick walls on every side and there is nothing between me and 40 convicted felons so i do what anyone would do right i assume the position no i prayed i prayed but would you believe it we had just been walking through genesis 1 so into the darkness and into the night for whatever reason whatever reason it was on my mind i yelled out these words let there be light and i slammed my hand on the podium and would you believe it the lights, boom, came on. I mean, the whole, all 40 of them jump up. They all thought I was a prophet. It took me 15 minutes. It took me 15 minutes to calm them down and explain I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. We had to go to Deuteronomy 18, and I had to walk through what a prophet is just to clarify for them. So there's no mistake, but it gets better. The following week, same class, same students, I'm driving on the highway south. I'm, I'm going south towards the prison. And it just so happens that day I am teaching on Noah, the covenant God makes with Noah. We're in Genesis chapter 9 through 6, uh, six through 9, and we're walking through the Noahic covenant. And as I'm driving south, there appears a rainbow over the highway. And I'm driving into this rainbow. It is big and beautiful. I mean, it's Houston, so it's always raining and, and humid and wet and they're there all the time, right? But I'm driving south and it appears this rainbow over the highway and I get in the prison and I say, guys, I have no idea what's happening. 
I don't know what's going on here. I mean, last week we had the let there be light thing. This week I'm driving south on the prison. There's a rainbow. And there was one student in the class who was a little bit sharper than the rest. He raised his hand. He said, excuse me, Dr. Presley, I know next week we're supposed to get through Abraham and Moses and all that. But is there any way we can jump ahead to Joshua? You know, the battle of Jericho, the walls come tumbling down. <laughs> is there any way we can just skip all that in between? Because I'd love to see that happen, Dr. Presley. I'd love to see that. Teaching in the prison taught me one thing, and it taught me many things, but one thing especially. It taught me to love hope. It taught me to love the hope of the life of the world to come. It taught me to live a, a life of faith that is infused in hope. When you walk into a prison, hope is like a cloud that settles down on that place. Those men that are locked up are longing. Their entire life is oriented around this longing for hope, this longing to be released, this longing for this freedom. It colors and it frames everything they do, everything they say. They try to live and they live their life inside this prison longing for hope. Now, of course, what they're hoping for isn't always the Christian hope. It's the hope maybe in this life to get out. It's the hope to see their family again. It's the hope to, to be free. It's the hope to drive a car, to eat a donut, to do something other than be held up in a cell. But when you open up to Malachi, as I did with them so often, we would speak regularly about the Christian hope. What the Christian hopes for, how the life of faith for the Christian is fused with hope, an eternal eschatological hope. And that's what we find when we open up to Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. Follow along with me as I read. I'm going to read the text to the end of chapter 4. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge, that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed, not only the doers of wickedness built up, but they test God and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention to it, and he heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day that I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and the evildoer will be chaffed. The day is coming, will be set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So it will leave neither root nor branch, but for you, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves coming forth from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, 
I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. May God add a blessing to the reading of, the word, of his word. When you walk into the world of Malachi, uh, when you walk in and you step into this world, you are at the end of the Old Testament narrative. You're at the end of God's story of, of the work of redemption in the Old Testament. And when you walk into Malachi, I like to conceive of it as kind of the final courtroom scene that you're walking into. If you know the book, it's arranged in a series of disputations. There's six of them. And the one we just read is the last of those disputations. The disputation format begins with a statement of fact where God says something. And then, of course, the nation comes up and says, no way, God. There's no way we're like that. There's no way we did that. And then God provides them very carefully evidence for why God is true. When I walk into this book, I feel the kind of the weight of the whole story of the Old Testament. It's building to this point because after this, Malachi being the last of the prophets, God is silent for 400 years until our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ comes. This is sort of the last, the period of God's statement. And when you read the section we just read, you feel the gavel of God's judgment coming down, but God does not leave them without hope. He ends it with hope. When I read the book, I, sometimes it makes me think of my PhD defense. When I walked in, I had the work I had done that was laid before experts who examined the work I had done and very carefully begin to pick through the problems with it. When I walked in, of course I had not done everything wrong. I'd spent years poring over this. There is no way I could have done anything wrong. But the experts begin to examine and very carefully reveal to me, for example, footnote 18, where I misspelled one of my examiner's names. PhD students, don't do this. Make sure... You spell their names properly. But very carefully, carefully, as my work is laid down before them, and as they begin to raise problems, the work of Israel is laid down before our God, and he begins to walk through very carefully all the ways in which they have failed to keep covenant. Six different disputations. If you know the book, it begins when God says, I love you, and Israel says, no, you don't. You don't love me. And God said, let me show you. In the next disputation, God said, uh, where is my honor? Israel says, we honored you, God. He says, look at your priests. Look at your sacrifices. You don't honor me. He walks through. Look at your marriages. The great passage, God hates divorce, comes out of this text, right? He works it down to tithing. You do not bring in your tithe. And systematically, God walks through the entire nation until he comes to this text right here. When I read this, this is the final period and the cycle of disputations. And notice how he begins where he says, your words have been arrogant against me. You have stood before me in pride and you have stood before me and you have said that which is not true. And what does the Lord say? The people, of course, look at him and say, God, what have we said? How, how can we be arrogant? We're not arrogant, God. It's someone else's fault. It's definitely not us. 
I'm not gonna say this has happened to me and I'm not gonna say it even happened this weekend, but imagine there was someone who had, I don't know, four kids and there was one child who had a toy and was playing with this toy and there was another child who may have been the sibling that went over and that stole the toy and ran away and then the child, uh, they be, what happens next is the other child who lost the toy goes up and begins to lay blows upon the child who stole the toy and then the father comes to adjudicate, right? And what do they do? It was the sister you gave me. It was the brother you gave me. You see, when the Lord points out sin, how often do we minimize it? We shrink, we hide. It can't be me. Oh, no, 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 God, you're misunderstood. What have we done? What have we said, God? See, God, you're misunderstanding. Clearly, you don't understand because we have kept covenant. Clearly, you don't see the problem, God. But then God says, I know what you have said. You have stood before me and you have said, it is vain to serve God. And that, that statement here at the end of the Old Testament is like a punch in the gut. It is vain to serve God? It is vain to keep his charge? It clearly, it shows you that Israel, even here at the end of all of God's revelation that has been given through Moses and the prophets, they still do not have a proper doctrine of God. In fact, the statement itself is incoherent because if they truly believed God as God, if they truly believed he was the creator of all things, if they truly believed he had formed and fashioned this universe, if he had truly reached down into the dust and molded Adam and breathed into him the breath of life, if in fact he had called Abraham and all the prophets, surely they would not say, it is vain to serve God. It is by definition not vain to serve God if God is God. You see, their theology is distorting their practice. Their misunderstanding of who God is causes them to say, it is vain to serve the Lord. It's not only striking to me as I read this, that it is, it is a misconception of who God is. It's also a misconception of what God has done. At this point in the Old Testament, I have to think, surely they know the stories of the Old Testament. Surely they know the stories of Abraham when God went and called Abraham out and made him promises. Surely they know the story of when God gave the land to him. Surely they know the story about Abraham in an old age. God provided a son through whom those promises and that blessing would pass. Surely they know the story of Moses. When God, God raised up Moses to lead the nation out of Israel, surely they know the song of Moses in Exodus 15. Israel's dancing on the banks of the Red Sea. Our Lord is a warrior, right? Mighty is our God. Sure, surely they know the stories of Joshua and the conquest when the nation is going into the land and the Lord gives them city after city. At the end of Joshua, the land is divided up. Surely they know those stories. About the judges who when the nation was oppressed, God raised up another judge to give them rest. Surely they know the stories of the kings, of David, a man after God's own heart, of Solomon who built the temple. 
I mean, surely they know the stories of, uh, of all the kings that came after. And even when the nation went into exile, that God, as he promised in Jeremiah 29, 70 years and I will bring you back. They, they have come back now. Surely they know those stories. Because if they know God has been faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful here at the end of the Old Testament, they would not turn to God and say, it is vain to serve the Lord. But already the nation has a misunderstanding of who God is and a denial of what God has done already for them. And they look at God and they say, it is vain to serve you. You know, those of us who live this side of the cross and the resurrection, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the Old Testament was written for our instruction. When I come to a text like this, I'm reminded of, of how Israel responded, and, and, and I'm reminded that those of us here who live this side of the cross and the resurrection, who live this side of God fulfilling even more of his promises, those of us who have come to believe and confess in the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God has done in and through him, may these words not come from our mouths. It is vain to serve the Lord. May we not say that. May we not be the kind of people knowing even more of God's revelation of what God has done that these words come from our mouth. It is vain to serve the Lord. But what do they go on and say in verse 14? Uh, what profit is it that we have kept his charge and have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? We've done everything, God. We've kept covenant. We've mourned before you. We've kept your charge. We've walked in your ways. We've done it all, Lord. What's the problem, God? It hasn't benefited us. You see, God, we were only doing it because we wanted something out of it. We were only showing up and offering sacrifices because of the way it benefited me. I was only putting on a nice suit and going to church for the way it benefited me. I was only showing up and singing those songs and listening to the sermon for the way in which it benefited me. You can feel the, even at this stage, the legalism in the nation, the misunderstanding of what it means to keep covenant, to love God in the inner heart that is devoted and loves God and desires to keep covenant that is born out of a deep love and fear and reverence for God. But you see in verse 15, these people in the nation that look out and they say it doesn't benefit us, what do they see when they look out? Right now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, they test God and they escape. You see, God, when I look out into the world, all I see is the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. God, I look out and I see many problems. And what I see is, is those who keep your charge often suffer and those who don't often prosper. God, this world doesn't make sense. You can't be God. It is, not, it is vain to follow you. It doesn't benefit me because clearly following you doesn't bring me what I want. Clearly following you doesn't, doesn't help me because the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. And you know this question is often asked in the Old Testament. 
We could point to books like Job, books like Habakkuk, where the same question comes up. Lord, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Why, God, when I look out at the world, things from my vantage point, from my perspective, look upside down? Why, oh God? Why? We're gonna see our Lord doesn't answer the question why, at least not in this text. What he does is answer the question when. He doesn't tell them why the righteous uh, suffer and the wicked prosper. He tells them when, at some time, the world will be set right. And thus he encourages the nation and the people of God to walk in a faith that is infused with hope. No matter what the world looks like, no matter what happens, he challenges them, as we're going to see, to walk in a faith that is infused with hope. Even then, the world looks upside down. Even when you look out and it looks like the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper, God doesn't say why, but he says when. Verse 16, we see the response of those who are faithful. Notice God hasn't told them, at least not in the text, when yet. In fact, those who fear the Lord are apparently a different group that has seen what they see, that has said, Lord, I don't understand this world. It looks upside down, but you know what? In the midst of all this chaos, we fear you. We trust you, O God. We fear you. Then those who fear the Lord, verse 16, said to one another, and the Lord gave attention and he heard it. Lord, he heard those who came to him, who humbled themselves and cried out to God and said, Lord, this world may be in chaos, but we trust you. We fear you. We praise your name. Reminds me when I read this text, I immediately thought of the scene in John chapter six. When our Lord's teaching is perceived as hard by many of those disciples who follow him. In fact, our Lord is talking about, I am the bread of life. And he's talking about, if you want to follow me, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And all of the, the disciples who are hearing this, they're saying, Lord, this is way too hard. John chapter 6, 66, it says at that point, many of his disciples who were following him turned back and no longer followed him. And in that scene, our Lord turns to the twelve says, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to go? What are you going to do? Peter says, where would we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. Where, where would I go? Where would I turn? For you have the words of eternal life. You have the words which promise us life with you, everlasting, real, eternal life in a kingdom with you in your presence. Lord, only you have those words. Where would we turn? And I get that sense when I read this. There are those, there is a remnant who turn to God and who say, we fear you and we praise your name. And the Lord says, you will be mine. Powerful words. I, I hear the echoes of the covenantal formula that's often repeated through the Old Testament. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. 
When I read this text, I see uh, the beginning of the Lord's offering of hope to those who trust and who fear him. He says, there is a day coming, a day of the Lord. There is hope in a kingdom that is to come. When those who trust God, he will spare them as he spares his own son. Similar words come to us in the book of Revelation. A very well-known passage in Revelation 21 when the new heavens and the new earth descends and God, we see the holy city, the new Jerusalem descending and we hear the loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old things have passed away and the new has come. Verse five, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And write these words, for they're faithful and true. And the Alpha Omega said, it is done, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts the spring of water with, of life without cost, so that he who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. The promise of the new coming, the new kingdom, the hope that even though when I look out of the world, things look in chaos, the righteous suffer, the wicked prosper, but our Lord says, hold on, a day is coming when you will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, and I will spare you as a man spares his own son. He goes into more description of this day, beginning in chapter four, where he says, behold, a day is coming, burning like a furnace, when the arrogant and the evildoer will be a chaff. They will be, uh, they, the day that is coming will set them ablaze. There is this image of once again, you will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. I know you look out and it looks like the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper, but a day is coming where you will distinguish. You will see it. And in that day, they will be cut off. Those who reject God, those who do not fear the Lord, they will be cut off. As the day of the Lord is always a day of judgment and always a day of blessing. Those who do not fear the Lord will be cut off so that there will leave them neither root nor branch. But, 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 but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. When I lived in Scotland for four years, I, I learned to love the summer and especially the sunrise. There is, no, there is nothing I have experienced. I mean, I grew up in Texas. There is nothing I have experienced like a Scottish winter. We're in December. In December at Christmas time, it is dark, it is cold, it is wet, and the, and the sun doesn't come up till 10 o'clock in the morning and it goes down at three. It barely crests the horizon. You are longing for that sun to come. You are longing. You're longing, but hold on. Summer's coming. Month of July in St. Andrews, the sun comes up at three o'clock in the morning and it is daylight till 11 o'clock at night. More time for golf, more time for, for playing, more time for running on the beach, more time for spending with your family, going to the parks, more time to live in the sunshine. In fact, it's hard to get your kids to bed. It's eight o'clock and it feels like noon. 
Dad, why are we going to bed? It's time to go play. The sun is out. Our Lord uses this imagery of the sun of righteousness rising. And as the rays of the sun come down, you see the healing of the Lord for the nations that come down. This sun of righteousness that rises, as you can see and feel the healing in the imagery of the text. They are healed. And he goes on to say, you will skip skip about like calves coming forth from your stalls. I'll never forget the day I read this text in prison, staring at 40 convicted felons who lived their lives like cattle in a stall. And I, I, I read this text and I began to ask them, I just paused and I started to ask them, what is life like in a cell? I had one guy up, up front that had, had an undershirt on. I, I just asked him, I said, how long have you worn that undershirt? He said, I've worn this same shirt for a decade. I said, how do you wash it? Every night, I pull out some powder bleach and I wash it in my toilet and I set it out to dry. I said, I, 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 I see some, some tears in it. It looks like you sewed it up. He said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got a needle and some thread that I took off the, the sheet and I sewed it up. I said, how did you get a needle in here? I said, no, don't tell me that. I don't wanna know that, actually. Uh, And as they began to paint a picture for me of what it's like, the daily life living in a cell, as I read this text, it brought to my mind the the, the reality and the hope of breaking the bonds of sin and death and skipping forth in a new kingdom when we will go forth this great hope of the life of the world to come. He ends and says, you will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. The wicked will be cut off and you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. I think in the last three verses of verse four, I think this is our application. I think this is one instance in which the text itself gives us the application. In other words, these three verses paint a picture for us of what it looks like to live a life that is infused with hope. These three verses, as they're given to the nation of Israel, God says, continue to do this. This is what it looks like to live a life of faith that is infused with hope. One, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances. Of course, when you read that, this idea of remembering is not just recalling the points of the covenant, but actually doing them. A heart that loves God, that willingly and out of the bottom of the heart serves God and trusts God and follows God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength. Even here, Malachi is saying, this is what's gonna happen in the future, but right now, right now it's time to serve me. I think this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of our Lord's ascension, I think as we read this, I think it can apply directly to us. We too should remember the law of Moses. Remember for the way in which it has made promises and it has has laid down ordinances and stipulations that have been fulfilled in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we read, remember the law of Moses, we dedicate ourselves to scripture to remember the way in which scripture has continued even for us to make promises and made, and made expectations that are fulfilled for us in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
I think this, this text calls us in the in-between time as we await for the day of the Lord, knowing that our Lord has come, we dedicate ourselves to scripture. And we understand what God has revealed. If we understand the way in which it has been revealed in and through our, the person and work of Christ. And we understand that what God is going to do in the future in the day of the Lord. Number two, behold, I'm gonna send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. If you know your New Testament, you know that John the Baptist was early on identified as Elijah, although he constantly denied it. But coming down from transfiguration, what does our Lord say? John was Elijah, but you didn't listen to him. You killed him. And therefore, the implication is we are waiting once again for another Elijah-like prophet who is going to come and announce the day of the Lord as we study scripture and as we pour over and remember the law of Moses. We too now are looking for another Elijah-like prophet who is going to come and announce the day of the Lord that we are waiting for. The day of the Lord where again we will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. The last point. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that he will not come and smite a land with the curse. In fact, it's the opposite. The land will not be cursed. The land will be blessed. This image of fathers and children paints a picture of what the peace and, and, and what life is like in the coming kingdom of God where the family of God dwells in unity, where God is there and his people are there and there is peace in the land. One of my favorite things is driving home from the seminary after a long day of teaching. I look forward to walking in my door and seeing my four little ones. My son, who's two, comes running up to me. Daddy, 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 it's time to read a book. Daddy, come, come here, come sit down, Dad. I, I, got the, I, I got this book I want you to read. My four-year-old son pulls me another direction. Dad, Dad, I got this pirate ship here. Dad, come play, come, come on, we got some army men. Dad, come on, come play, come, come see this. My two daughters wanna come and sit and tell me what happened at school that day want to share with me. Dad, you won't believe what happened. Dad, dad, you won't see. And, and, and as often as we can, we gather around the table and there is a moment of peace in the evening when all around the table, we begin to sit and talk and the heart of a father is restored to his children and the hearts of the children are restored to their father. There is a moment, a glimpse of the way in which God will bring peace to his people. And so Malachi leaves you with this. How do we apply this text? You remember the law of Moses. You study the scriptures. You pour over what God has revealed. How do I live a life of faith that is infused with hope? You know the scriptures and you remember them and you study them and you live by them. How do I live a life of faith infused with hope? You, you look for the coming of Elijah, this Elijah-like prophet. On that great and terrible day of the Lord, well, he will appear and there will be blessing and there will be judgment. How do I live a life infused, uh, a faith infused with hope? You long for the day when the hearts of the fathers will be restored to the children and the hearts of the children will be restored to their fathers. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the word that you have given to us through your prophet Malachi. 
Father, thank you for the way it challenges us, it stirs our hearts. Lord, thank you for the way it instructs us to walk in faith and to walk in hope. Lord, thank you for the way that uh, even in small ways this morning, you are by your spirit challenging us, that you are edifying us, and that you are instructing us. Lord, may we be people who walk in faith and walk in hope. Whatever the world looks like, Lord, whatever is going on in our lives, may we place our trust and our faith and our hope in you because you have the words of eternal life. All these things we ask through your son, our Lord, amen.